Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic. When I can, I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone. This is Stephen Hayat, the writer of today's episode, and you're listening to Gather by the Ghost Light. Welcome back to Gather by the Ghostlight, original stories for radio theater. I'm Jonathan Cook, your host, producer, and sometimes voice actor on this thing. And you are about to hear part two of Hugo Saves Christmas in May, written by Stephen Hayat. If you haven't heard part one yet, go check that one out first before diving into this one, just so you get the full story. Act two begins with a scene that takes place 30 years earlier. It's a moment where Maya's mom and Hugo's mom meet for the first time in the Yuletide Cheer Christmas store. Now, gather around the ghost light, sit back and enjoy. This is part two of Hugo Saves Christmas in May, written by Stephen Hayat. Be sure to stick around after the story to hear an interview with this writer. the Seaview Square Mall. The man at the Shell Station told me to take the third left and then a right at the light, but then there was no light, and wow, somehow I've ended up at the North Pole. Welcome to the Yuletide Cheer Holiday Store. Ho, ho, how can I help you? You do know it's May, don't you? In here, it's always Christmas. I see that. So, yeah, I'm trying to get to the Seaview Square Mall. Oh, it's easy. You know where the Perkins is? Just go past the Perkins. Hang a left on Sycamore. Take that till you hit the circle. It's either the third or fourth turnoff by the Exxon station. It used to be Exxon. Now I think it's a speedway. Either way, the gas station. Take that for about half a mile or so, and then the mall will be up on the right. There'll be signs. It's pretty easy. There is no way I'm going to remember all that. I can repeat it. Not a problem. So you know where the Perkins is? I don't. Then do you know where the Kmart is? The Perkins is right near the Kmart. I'm new to the area and still figuring out where everything is. Would you mind writing it down? Sure thing. Let me go grab a pen and paper. Thank you. So, you only sell Christmas stuff in here? Yep. And people really buy Christmas stuff all year round. They do. We actually had a woman come in today who bought a dozen rolls of wrapping paper, a couple of cookie cutters, and a stuffed donkey wearing a Santa hat. That's a lot of stuff. I know. 
It surprises me too. There are some people I think Christmas shopping stresses them out. The sooner they can check it off their list, the better. But most just come in and browse. I can see that. It's a really nice little shop. Thank you. My business partner keeps wanting to add things and make it all cluttered. I keep on telling her people associate the holidays with the crazy, but they love them for their calm. So there will be no giant inflatable reindeer in here. Not on my watch. <laughs> all right. Wrote it all down for you. Here you go. Thank you so much. Oh, you're a lifesaver. Without you, I'd just be driving around and around until I disappeared like Amelia Earhart. <laughs> Before you go, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. And I hope you won't think less of me for asking this. Uh, that really depends on what you're asking. Fair. <laughs> What's the deal with the donkey in the Santa hat? The deal? What is it from? The donkey. I have never seen it before anywhere, and I think it's a thing, and it's been driving me crazy. And when the woman bought it today, she was like, oh my god, I can't believe you carry this. And I had to be like, of course we do. But I have no idea what this is. A donkey in a Santa hat? Why is this something that would excite people? <laughs> oh, it's from a song, Dominic the Donkey. Dominic the Donkey. I, I should write that down. Oh, be careful. It's one of those songs that when you hear it, you can't unhear it, ever. I'm going to have to risk it. It's part of the job. A good chef should be familiar cooking with a whole bunch of different ingredients. Meats, vegetables, fish, grains. She doesn't have to like them all, but she's got to know what they are. I will listen to this Dexter the donkey. Dominic. Yes, Dominic. I will listen to it. Godspeed. It can't be that bad. It's not my cup of tea. Fine to listen to once a year, but not every day. You'll see. I appreciate your help. I didn't grow up really celebrating Christmas. You didn't? No, but I went to public school, so I feel like I got the Cliff Notes version. I had to learn a lot to manage this store. I would go to the library all the time to check out different books. The librarian calls me Mrs. Claus because I check out so many. But I need to know what I'm selling. There are so many traditions and songs and movies. I think I've seen at least eight different versions of A Christmas Carol. I've heard they're releasing one this year with The Muppets. Are you serious? The Muppets? Yeah, that's what I heard. That's wild. The Muppets are going to do A Christmas Carol. Who's next? Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> Eventually, it's going to come to a point where you will be considered odd if you haven't been in a production of A Christmas Carol. I was. Played Scrooge's sister when I was in fourth grade. I played Bob Cratchit. We didn't have many boys in our high school's drama club. I looked pretty dapper in my top hat, but my British accent sounded like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. <laughs> but Mr. Scrooge, sir, tomorrow's Christmas it is! The 25th of December. It only comes round once a year, it does. <laughs> Bravo! So I have a Christmas carol down pat. I'm just learning all the other stuff there is, and there is so much stuff. Do you have another quick second? I feel like I'm taking up all your time. I don't. I'm sorry. I really need to get going. My son is actually out in the car. Your son? You could have brought him in here. No, it's not that. He's asleep. Hugo is a ball of energy, refuses to take naps, but in the car, out like a light. And when my kid naps, I let him nap. But I don't even know if you'd want him in here in any case. I could see him running around, knocking over the Christmas tree. I'm sure he wouldn't. And I would be so embarrassed. I hear a big crash and then see my son lying next to a fallen pine with ornaments scattered everywhere. 
If we were in a sitcom, I'd look around all weird and be like, is this someone's kid? And then we'd get that canned laughter. Totally. But in real life, I can't joke like that, so I just feel mortified. That kid is my everything, though he drives me nuts sometimes. I never want him to hear, ever, even in jest, anything that implies I might be embarrassed by him, even if occasionally he makes me feel it. I totally understand. I have two of my own. Two? Boys? Girls? One of each. They're good kids, but there are always those moments when they want to kill each other. (laughs) One time we went out to the diner and the waitress gave them crayons to color on the placemats, but there was only one red crayon. Practically started World War III. That was the first time I actually thought I'd be asked to leave a restaurant. Then you get it. Any economist who wants to study supply and demand just needs to come over and babysit my kids for an afternoon. If there is only one of something, a toy, a treat, a crayon, it instantly becomes the most desired treasure in the world. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for your help. Before you go, one last thing. I really need to... I know, I know. I just, I need an expert opinion on something. It'll only take a second. It's part of my Christmas research. I've been baking as many different Christmas cookies as possible. Try one. What do you think? It's a snickerdoodle. It's like if a sugar cookie got all dolled up for a night on the town. I love the name snickerdoodle. Apparently they're from the German word schneckenoodle, which is also fun to say. Mm, mm. They, they are delicious. Thanks. Take another one. Take one for your son. If I keep eating all the cookies I make, I'll be able to play Santa at Christmas. These are really fantastic. I used to love to bake, but I can't remember the last time I had homemade cookies. Do you remember where you found the recipe? Not offhand, but I have it at home. I can copy it for you and have it for the next time you stop by. Never mind, then. You don't need to worry about it. It's not a problem. I'd be happy to. I appreciate the offer, but honestly, I don't know when that'll be. You see, I don't really go shopping for me. I was only lost and stumbled in here looking for directions. If you're worried you won't find the shop again, I can give you directions. You know where the Perkins is? No, (laughs) it has nothing to do with directions. It's just that it's only the two of us, me and Hugo. My husband was in the army and we had Hugo right before he was deployed. It was only supposed to be a year, but then one afternoon, a soldier comes to my door to tell me he's not going to be coming home. Life's funny. You can have it all figured out. The life you want to build. The person you want to build it with. And then one knock at the door and you're alone. With a child too young to understand why and a house that's suddenly gotten too big. I'm so sorry. So now it's just me and him. And I know it's probably stupid, but with me being gone at work so much of the time, I just feel really selfish using our time together to drag him to a store for only my enjoyment. I think he could entertain himself here. It's not a kid's store, but not everything's a choking hazard. (laughs) He would destroy everything. When he gets excited, he's like a hurricane of enthusiasm. Does he like Christmas? It's got toys and cookies and pretty flashing lights. That's pretty much a four-year-old's holy trinity. Then bring him by. You don't understand. I would be mortified. Can I offer you some advice? You can say no. I don't mean to be forward. I grew up in a family where people just give advice. (laughs) They'd be like, Rachel, you know what's wrong with your Thanksgiving turkey? And then I would get an impromptu cooking lesson from a cousin who's never cooked Thanksgiving in her life. So I understand it can be annoying when people just throw stuff at you. No, it's okay. 
please. I find this works with my oldest. When I want her to stay out of trouble, I give her a job. A job? He's only four. I have to wait till he's at least six before I can get him a job in the mine. <laughs> Children want to help, so I find some way to make them think they're helping. A few weeks ago, I had just put my youngest down for a nap. He desperately needed one. You can just tell. But my daughter Maya wouldn't be quiet. She was singing Disney songs so loud they could probably hear her in Disney World. <laughs> That's funny. So I gave Maya an incredibly important job. We have this apple tree in our backyard. The deer always eat the apples. I asked her to watch it for me, to keep a lookout and let me know the moment a deer appears, see if we could catch them in the act. And that kept her quiet for your son's entire nap time? No, about 15 minutes. But that's all you need when you visit here, right? We'll figure out something for your son to do so that you can have a few moments to yourself. Maybe he can help me pick out the perfect ornament for the tree. I love it. I just keep him on that end of the store away from the glass ones. See that box over there? All the ones in there are only a dollar. Smart. Well, I gotta get to the mall. Hugo's outgrown his sneakers and needs a new pair. <laughs> Thank you again for the directions and the cookies. My pleasure. And I'll have the recipe waiting for you next time you pop by. Looking forward to meeting your son. Thanks. We'll see how it goes. Hey, Hugo. It's me, Maya. I don't know if you remember. What are you doing here? So you do remember me. I know it's been a year. What are you doing here? Uh, just drinking some overpriced coffee. I got one for you, in case you stop by today. It may be a little cold. I've been here a while. I honestly wasn't sure if you'd come. It's my mom's birthday, and this was the site of her favorite store. I love what you've done with the place. Don't knock it until you've tried out the bathrooms. They have working hot water. <laughs> Can you not with the snide comments today? I'm sorry. It's a thing. I try to use humor to hide my inner guilt. You should feel guilty. You turned your mom's store into a Starbucks. We both know I didn't, but that doesn't stop me from feeling guilty. No matter what I did, I was going to let someone down. Jews don't really believe in hell, but if there was a Jewish hell, it'd be a room full of people perpetually disappointed by every decision I made for all eternity. That's how guilt works. How do you function? You just constantly try to find ways to relieve it. What are you doing? Trying to be discreet. What? You'll see. Are they playing Christmas music? Yeah. It's May. Not in here. Here it's always Christmas. Sounds familiar. I actually paid them. You paid them? Yeah. $500. Are you serious? That's how you spent the money? No. I just asked them. I told him I had a friend stopping by who could use a little jolly. I just thought saying $500 added some nice symmetry to everything. <laughs> I actually used the money on an airline ticket to see my mom. Flew down to my brother's house, saw my nieces and nephews, had a long talk with my mom. It was nice and healthy and way overdue. It felt like since the store was no longer anyone's burden or responsibility, we could just talk. Did you really wait here all day just to tell me about your mother? On my dead mother's birthday? No, I didn't. I'm here because I thought you may need a little Christmas. Like the song says. I'm fine. The coffee's enough. When I was packing away the store... I don't want to hear about the store either. It's only one thing. No, 
thank you. Just one. It's quick. One. That's it. When I was packing up the store, I came across this box. It was full of letters that kids wrote to Santa, back from when we kept the mailbox out. Most were pretty boring. A lot of requests for pogs. But I came across this one. Do you want to... Okay, that's fine. I can read it. Dear Santa, I know, I know you didn't, didn't come, come to my, my house, house last year. year. My, my mom, mom tried to make me think you did, but I spotted, I spotted her wrapping paper. It's okay. I'm not mad. You come to our house every year, and I know I did not do enough to make it special. I'll pick a nicer ornament this year. Promise. Sincerely, Hugo. My cursive was pretty good then. Probably the last time I used it. When I saw the letter, my first thought was, Aw, it's little Hugo. He has a surprisingly good sense of sentence structure for a third grader. Then I was like, wow, this is really sad. But then I went, wait a minute. Something didn't make sense. Is there a point to this? When you came into the store the first time, you were sitting on the floor right over there playing with ornaments. I remember. And you told me that... You noticing your mom's wrapping paper was the glass-shattering moment when you realized that Santa wasn't real. And? But you still wrote this letter. I guess I didn't want it to be over. That's what the letter was. A, a last attempt. But it didn't end up mattering. You can't unfigure out a secret. All you can do is pretend you haven't. There's one thing I never understood about the whole Santa thing. What's that? Why? Why? Yeah, Why? Why do parents allow it to happen? Having their kids believe that their gifts are coming from some magical creature. It's like the Tooth Fairy. No, I get the Tooth Fairy. If I was buying children's baby teeth, I'd want to do that anonymously. That one's just weird. So you didn't believe in the Tooth Fairy either? No, I did. For a little bit. But then you catch on to the absurdity, yet you realize that if you say anything, it probably means the money is going to stop showing up under the pillow. I think that's when humans are taught willful ignorance. Some creature is literally harvesting children's teeth, and we learn to take the money and not ask questions. But what's the purpose of Santa Claus? Rewarding obedience? Teaching kids to blindly follow jolly old big brother of the North Pole, and he will bestow upon you gifts? However, if you step out of line, he'll know. And you will get cold, dinosaur remains, probably as a reminder of what happened to the last species that questioned his authority. That's not even close. Santa is about believing that someone out there in the world cares. Imagine opening a present and it's exactly what you wanted. And someone knew that. And they gave it to you. That was my parents. Mine too. That's someone out there in the world who cares. Often it's your parents. So yeah, after I found out that Santa was actually my mom, I was sad. And then a little angry. <laughs> I went through a phase where I hardcore rooted for the Grinch to steal Christmas. But then I realized, of course Santa had to be my mom. Who else would listen to me talk for hours about the board game Crossfire? The commercials made it look like it was some epic battle for the galaxy, when in actuality it's just a game where you shoot marbles at a couple pieces of plastic. I would make up new lyrics to the theme song and sing them for my mom, and she would listen. I'd remember her looking at me so attentively, like my account of this fictional board game war would go down in history like the Iliad and the Odyssey. If I went to the mall to tell Santa about Crossfire, I'd get 30 seconds tops. Santa may be patient, but he's not mom patient. You were lucky to have each other. We both were. Showing love under the cover of Christmas, deep down, I think that's why my mom always needed me to work at the store. It was her way of keeping me safe. I couldn't be running from rhinos if I was working the register. 
But now that the store's closed... Baby steps. Baby steps. I'm actually working at the aquarium, in the gift shop, as a compromise. It's actually at the opposite end of the aquarium from the stingrays, which made my mom very relieved. <laughs> I get to watch the animals during my lunch breaks, and I even made friends with the guy who feeds the penguins, so every now and then, he lets me do it. It's not perfect, but I made a deal with my mom. I'm going to work there until I save up enough money to move to Iceland. They have a beluga whale sanctuary there. You won't feel guilty moving so far away? Okay, I sort of lied before. I didn't use the money on airline tickets to see my mom. It was much worse than that. I bought her a new iPhone. I installed a bunch of apps on it so she can reach me in like 16 different ways. Phone call, video call, text message, direct message, emoji. There is no hiding. I even set it so she can see when I've seen her message, which is dangerous. But now I can be in Iceland swimming with belugas and my mom can know that I'm only a click away. And my exact coordinates within 15 feet. Congrats on finding door number three. Thanks. How have you been doing this year? Has it gotten any easier? Some days I think of her more, and some days I don't think about her, and then feel bad for not thinking about her. But I'm adjusting, and growing, and trying to move forward. Looking back, it's probably a good thing you didn't take my offer to save the store. What caused this epiphany? For starters, that Star Wars figure. I don't think it's ever going to be worth $20,000. The guy at the comic book store lied to me. <laughs> it's not even remotely limited edition. I may be able to help with that. These aren't $20,000, but I did dig up something that may have some worth. You kept the box of dollar ornaments from the store. Thank you. They're worth the world. I wanted to make sure you had a way to make your Christmas special. This Christmas, I tried like 15 times to replicate my mom's snickerdoodle recipe. I couldn't do it. No matter what I did, it didn't taste like hers. Like there was something missing. And I worry, while now I can taste the difference, one day I won't be able to. I'll have forgotten. If you need a recipe, my mom has a pretty good one. I'm just worried that I'm going to remember less and less as things change and I get older. She's gone, but I don't want her to disappear. You ever been to a Jewish cemetery? No. Well, it's similar to a Christian one. Less crosses, obviously, but if you look around at the gravestones, there are no flowers. No flowers? That seems depressing. It's a cemetery. <laughs> you see, flowers represent life. They are beautifully temporary. Around for a moment, and then gone. So instead, when we visit a grave, we leave a stone. Just a small one. Nothing special. Whatever is lying around. We put it right on the tombstone. Stones are like memories. They're forever. What you and your mom had is not something that's going to disappear because there's a different business in these four walls or because you didn't write down her secret snickerdoodle recipe. You created all these amazing forever memories with your mom growing up. I'm jealous. I wish I did. I'm sure you did. I don't. I thought long and hard about it. I don't have any cool memories, just boring ones. Like when I was six years old, my parents took me and my brother to Disney World. We rode on all the rides I was big enough to ride and met so many characters. My parents even took us to a special character breakfast where we could eat pancakes with Mickey and Goofy and all the princesses. Do you know the only thing I remember? The only memory that is actually mine? Not one that I think I remember because I've been told the story so many times, but an actual memory. It's me, my brother, my mom and dad, sitting on a bench near the giant golf ball-looking thingy in Epcot, eating Mickey Mouse ice cream pumps. 
Seth dribbled some on his shorts, and there was this bird that was staring at us, hoping we'd drop it. But like hell, I was going to lose my Mickey Mouse ice cream pop. All that money spent on vacation. And the one memory I have is of a $5 ice cream. I don't think your parents would want it any other way. The best memories are the boring ones. Looking back, it's what I love most about Christmas. Christmas memories are rarely cool. Cool is for movies. Like in Jingle All the Way, a kid wanting a Turbo Man action figure and then learning his dad is Turbo Man, sort of. But real life memories are boring. Sitting around a dinner table, opening presents by the tree, baking Christmas cookies, building a gingerbread house and thinking, this is the year I'll make it look too good to eat. Boring is comfortable. I think we try so hard to make a moment that we forget that we're in it. Do you want to grab food? I'm starving. I've been here for hours, but I refuse to eat that panini that they leave sitting out the whole time. Sure. There's this Chinese place about five minutes from here. I can show you how my family used to celebrate Christmas. Sounds good to me. Then let's go. Happy birthday, Mom. That was part two of Hugo Saves Christmas in May, written by Stephen Hayat. It was performed by Adam Coward as Hugo, Marion Thibodeau as Maya, Amy Patton as Catherine, Pepper Wren as Rachel, and Luke Romagnoli as young Hugo. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so with me now is the writer of the story you just heard. He's a New Jersey-based playwright. His work has been performed on stages all over the place, from Los Angeles to London to New York to New Zealand. And he's currently a playwright in residence at the Roaring Epiphany Production Company. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Stephen Hayat. How are you, sir? And welcome back. Thank you. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for producing Hugo. I'm so excited to be back. We've gathered by the ghost light. Awesome. Now, this is your second time here uh, in the second season. I believe it was around December 2021. We did your play mm-hmm. Playing with Fired, which was coincidentally also a Christmas-themed play. Um, and now you're back with your new full-length play, Hugo Saves Christmas in May. <laughs> All right. And I also have two other guests here, the voice actors that performed Hugo, uh, Adam Cowart, who played Hugo, and Marion Thibodeau, who played Maya. How goes it, guys? Going well. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having me there, Jonathan. All right, now, before we dive into Hugo, uh, Stephen, just tell us, you know, what is new with you right now? I saw on social media, you got a few uh, other plays, you got productions coming up. Tell us about all those before we dive into Hugo. So Hugo just had its first stage production in New York City with Roaring Epiphany Production Company. 
they had commissioned me to write it over a year ago. Um, and we'd been writing it. We've had readings. Um, we were supposed to have the first reading in May to like line up with the title, but we had that in August and we've been developing it. Um, the play originally started as a two actor play, which we then expanded to four actors um, and just been doing that for like the last year plus. So it finally got to the stage last weekend or the May 20th, whenever this drops. Um, and so I'm still riding the post-show high of that. Um, and coming up, I have a few of my short plays, Date with Death, are coming up in, at different venues. And I'm slowly working on turning one of my short one-minute plays into an animated short. So I've been working with an animator on that. Um, soon, well, once we have that storyboarded, we'll start looking for, for actors um, and trying to do that and get into the animation world because I've always been fascinated by that too. Nice. Okay, so uh, Hugo Saves Christmas in May. I remember last time you were on, you had not had a world premiere of a full-length play yet. So is this the first time you've had a full-length play produced? It's. I've, I've been fortunate that it's not. My, my full-length play, Everlasting Chocolate Therapy, was performed by Out of the Box, the student theater company at Oklahoma City University. And then it was performed again in Blaine, Washington by the Blaine Community Players. Um, so this was the first one that I was actually able to attend in person and be involved with because I, I'm in New Jersey. So I, I wasn't able to fly out to Oklahoma or Washington State to be able to see those productions. So it was through emails and pictures. So it was really exciting to be at the first one that I could be at and nervously sitting in the back of the audience while the play is going on um, versus nervously checking my email after the show. Nice, nice. So you mentioned that Hugo Saves Christmas. You were commissioned to mm -hmm. write this by the Roaring Epiphany Production Company. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell us about that process, like how they approached you with the play, how you came up with the concept, the readings, uh, revisions along the way, you know, leading up to the, the world premiere of the stage play, which you said was only like two weeks ago. And now we have the premiere of the audio play um, released today. So it was around Christmas break, um, in December, I want to say 2021, when I got a text message from RJ, RJ and Jillian are the artistic directors of Roaring Epiphany. And they said to me, hey, would you like to write a full-length play for us, a two-person play? And I had never written a full-length two-hander before. And I'm trying to think of ideas of what I want to write on. I'm brainstorming. And usually whenever I start writing a new play, I open up a Google Doc and I just named the Google Doc something random. And this one was just RJ and Jillian Save Christmas. Just that was the title of the Google Doc. And I then had another character that I was, just a character name that I like called Hugo McGee. And I was like, huh, I wonder if like, I combine them together. And I was always fascinated by the year-round Christmas store. Um, I, I'm Jewish. I grew up in a, um, my stepmom is Catholic. So I celebrated Christmas with her family. My wife is Catholic. I celebrate Christmas with her family. But growing up, it was always interesting being not a Christmas celebrating household. So the idea of a year round Christmas store really intrigued me. And I went to college in Williamsburg, Virginia, and there was this Christmas store called the Christmas Mouse that 
was no matter what time of year, whenever parents visited, they had to go to this Christmas store. It could be like August and 105 degrees in Williamsburg, Virginia, and people were going to the Christmas store, and I never understood it. Um, and the, the idea of why, and why you need to buy Christmas ornaments in August. So from that idea, I thought, what about a store going out of business and generate from that and having one character be more of the outside perspective who works at the store and a person who's has this connection to the store from the family and seeing how their two experiences overlap. Very cool. Now, uh, my actors here. Uh, so Adam, when I first sent you this script um, and, and I asked you about playing Hugo, uh, what was your you know impression of it after you, after you read the whole thing? Uh, I, I couldn't think of anyone else to do it because reading it was like was like hearing myself talk because I'm about the most happy, positive person I know. And it, it absolutely fits the role because I'm just like, hey, it's it's Christmas time. Let's celebrate. Everybody should be happy, you know, and and uh, again, just reading it was just as, as if I had written what I would have said. Um, Jonathan is a wonderful director because he he pulled it out of me to be even more over the top, very Buddy the Elf kind of, it's Christmas, everybody should be happy, you know, which which is me, but just a, maybe a notch up. <laughs> it was it was great. I thought the, also I thought the story was very heartfelt. And um, I liked how he, towards the end of the story, you know, he started, you know, he's always talking about his mom and how special his mom was and everything. And I'm, I'm really close to my mom. I love my mom. And, uh, you know, and then at the end, he was talking about how his mom had passed away. And, you know, one thing, you know, that I think of is, you know, one day my mom will pass away. And there was a lot of emotion that I put into this play without even intending to. And Jonathan, I'm sure heard it when I was saying some of the lines and my voice was kind of breaking. And it's, it's, it's probably the first time I've caught that kind of genuine emotion on, on, you know, a recording because I was really thinking how sad I would be, you know, if I was thinking about, you know, my mom. So it, it, everything about it was perfect for me because uh, he loves his mom. He's excited. He loves Christmas. And uh, it was it was a perfect fit. And, and it was not not a lot of effort for me to to reach what you had written. Yeah. And it's funny. Uh, I actually I told Steven this when um, when I first had cast you in it. I was like, hey, the guy got to do Hugo. He is a real life Hugo. <laughs> it's like when yeah. I when I read the script, I, I had you in mind the whole time. Um, and you did so great finding the different levels uh, throughout the play, you know, the moments to be more sincere um, and th those moments that you need to push a little bit more over the top. Um, but, yeah, it was so great. Um, and uh, Marion, uh, she's here with us, too. She played Maya, who was the more disinterested in Christmas. Uh, so t tell us uh, what, what you thought about the script when you first read it. Um, it was it was a real easy read, easy uh, to connect with the characters. and both of the, the type of struggles that they were both going through. Um, and for Maya, when I went in, <laughs> I was a little more uh, serious um, versus like annoyed. So <laughs> they both had to keep telling me to like, hey, you know, just kind of lighten up a little bit more, you know. I think she's a little more annoyed with Hugo than, you know, like bitter. So um, they helped me find that balance with that. Cause like all I was focused on for Maya was just the fact that she wanted out of that store and to get on with her life and so they like i said they helped me kind of just find the balance in it um in that character um not so much like that she was like dying but you know just that she was just ready to move on to the next part of her life um 
so yeah so that was helpful to have that collaboration and one thing i really liked about marion's character is even though i'm such a you know up and chipper kind of guy i i love people like her character who sometimes because i've been a teacher for many years and some of my favorite kids are the ones with a really rough exterior and when you finally get past that you there's usually a heart of gold and i think i thought that was a, a super fun thing to explore with her as well because you know i just it's everybody loves the kind of character that kind of comes around and she's a tough nut and she's aggravated but you know at the end she is, is a bit of a, a bit of a redemption as well yeah and um steven i think I, I told you i was talking to you yesterday about this but like this is the first time i did a full-length play and it was so scary going into it but these two actors along with uh, my other actors who played the parents uh, they just made it they made it so easy <laughs> and um, it, it just, it all came together so great. And you, you kind of hit a gold mine on this cause you wrote a Christmas play that can actually be performed year round. <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if there's a, a theater looking for a play to do in August, June, May, this is an option for them. They don't have to wait till Christmas because this actually happens in the middle of the year. <laughs> I wrote it thinking that it might go, would go up in May or would have the first reading, but I like, doing plays that aren't like pigeonholed to like one area. So even playing with fired is a Christmas play, but not a Christmas play. Um, and I, cause every time you, if, as a playwright and Jonathan, when you're submitting stuff too, you see people in December being like, we're looking for Christmas plays, but not a Christmas Carol, please don't send us this. There's 60,000 adaptations of it and we've all done it. So I wanted to do something that was different and that, wasn't something that could only be done in December too. Um, but if people want to do it during Christmas, I'd be more than happy. <laughs> so I, I like, I want to create plays that can be performed whenever people want to perform them. Right now, uh, just as I was editing it and listening to the voices, um, there's some scenes that you, that you put in and some dialogue that really glued things together. Uh, like the flashback to the parents, when we see the whole snickerdoodle recipe being mentioned. And then later there's this callback in the final scene where uh, Hugo mentions, you know, I tried to make it, but it's not the same. And, and Maya's like, Oh, well, my mom has a recipy and the audience knows she knows where they got, they got that recipe from, but these characters as they're talking, they don't, they don't, they don't see the connection like the audience does. And I think that was so uh, well put together. Also the origin of picking out the ornament and why she kind of assigned that to him. Uh, is there is there any other uh, moments like that that I'm overlooking that that you kind of um, wrote in there? I did mention Maya mentions her memory at Disney World, and her mom talks about her singing Disney songs and blasting, like singing Disney songs super loudly. I I wanted with the parents. So when I first the very first draft of the play was just Hugo and Maya, and it was three scenes, and I felt it needed something more but I didn't want to add on to their story. And my wife um, actually was like, why don't you go back and do something with the parents? And so that was the scene I wrote last. And that's probably my favorite one in the play. I, I think that Disney was one, the snickerdoodles, the, even the knocking down a tree line later about how the mom would react. My dad, for him personally, he always talked about his, his grandma's honey cake. That was his recipe. He always loved. And even though like, my other family members have tried to make honey cake for when we found it. There's something about the memory of the honey cake that I don't think we can replicate. So like, even in that script, I think if Maya had given him the actual recipe that his mom used, I don't know if he would taste it the same way. 
of this <laughs> because the memory of the cookie is different. But I I like those connecting the dots and weaving them together and how the children view their parents and how the parents view them, how you see the parents in their own uh, scene. Yeah, I think that um, that third scene with the parents really, like I said, it is really kind of a moment to kind of glue things together. Well, one, one thing that I wanted to say is I was really impressed with how much you were able to build into the story. Um, even, you know, as a, a reader of the script or a listener to the story, I, I could almost see this town because it would, you know, kind of set the scene of where the store was and what the town was like and what it was like living there. And I was I was very impressed because it was like I mean you could almost see him walking in and what everything would look like, so I, I was I was very impressed with with how you kind of uh, you know as far as world building I thought that was really well done, and also um, I thought I, I remember Jonathan mentioning that you were the one that did playing playing with fired, mm-hmm. and and uh, and then by the time I read the script and got to the end and saw how you it was it was a very uh, Stephen ending. I thought it was very much on on tone and on brand with with other things that you had done. So I I thought that was that was pretty cool that you have that kind of signature that I was able to recognize. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've that's really flattering that I, I have something that's identifiable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I always like to mix humor with heart and try to yeah to try to take something that a situation and and try to find both of it. My wife had an acting teacher who used to say the road to comedy is through tragedy town. Um, And pretty much the way the situations are the same, but how you react to them is where you get the humor or the, the track or the drama. Um, But the, the situation itself can be the same. And so I, I like to play with that. And I like to have the situation where a Christmas story going out of business, you can be laughing or you can be, uh, going through the emotions with the characters as well from this same incident. I'm curious how, for Maya, where, or how you decided that her love for animals, like, did you draw that from anything or where I, did that come from? I don't from? know where I pulled that specifically. Um, sometimes I just, like, will write stuff, uh, notes down or in the Google Doc. I forgot who taught me this trick, and I wish I could give them credit. But sometimes when I'm starting a play and you get stuck, someone said, just interview your characters, ask them questions and see what comes out. And I think it came from there. Um, I remember Steve Irwin's death being like a very like traumatic moment for me as as far as like celebrity deaths can be. Um, And that idea of her wanting to work with animals and being like her mom being like, no, because how this guy got killed, like he's even though it was a fluke thing. So I think it came from just like interviewing Maya and you can't see me doing air quotes on a podcast, but, <laughs> but um, and that just popping out because I was trying to think of what job would she want to do if she wasn't in a store and animals came to me because I always like animals too, visiting aquariums and zoos. Yeah, one of my favorite parts is when they're when Hugo's trying to incorporate a way of her love of animals to the shop and he's like, What's your favorite animal? She's like, We're not putting a beluga whale into the shop. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Uh so with this being a very new play and you just saw the world premiere, um after you know, seeing it on stage, after hearing the audio, is there 
anything about it that you would revise based on, you know, your own experience with watching it? Um, you know, seeing it actually being performed is different than just hearing a reading a lot of times. So did you kind of catch anything, any, any sort of revisions you might make to it? Um, right now, I'm, I'm very happy with it. And I was worried that certain spots that I was worried whether an audience would react to, they responded well. Um, and the, re the reaction I got from the audience, and I mentioned I like sitting in the back of the theater anonymously. People don't know who I am. So when some audience members came up to me afterwards to say how they appreciate it, that, that meant a lot because they didn't have to find me. They don't, they could easily walk by me and pretend they don't know who I am sitting <laughs> there. It's the, the perk of being the playwright. Um, but I, I, I like some of it. One joke, which it was one that for the first reading, I was so ready to cut it. And my wife was like, ah, keep it. And it's gotten a laugh every time is when Maya makes the line about share. When I first like the, it's impossible to turn back time. I remember writing this and being like, this is so stupid. No one's ever going to laugh at this. And then at the first reading, it got a laugh and I was shocked. And I'm like, no, that's probably a fluke. That's not going to. And every time, and I still, it's still one of those where I'm like, I was, I was so ready to cut it, but my wife made me <laughs> keep <cool>. it. <laughs> uh so uh, you mentioned this this other full-length play you have, The Everlasting mm -hmm. Chocolate Therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I haven't had a chance to read this one yet, but I did read the synopsis and I looked at the characters. This is essentially sort of a a, a sequel or a parody to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And you, yeah. you have the the kids are growing up now and you've, and you've written a story about what their lives are like now. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that and if you have any more performances of that coming up. That sounded really interesting when I read about it. I, I don't. I'm. If anyone wants to, I'd be happy to talk. Um, but I've. I have been spinning it out. It's on the new play exchange. But yes, it's uh, a parody of the Willy Wonka story set 15 years in the future. So, I was a as a young kid. I loved Willy Wonka. Reading it in like third grade, and when you get older, you realize like these are 10 and 12 year old kids being put through such like incredible trauma because like one took a piece of gum. Like it was really Violet Beauregard that stuck out to me. I'm like, she's permanently disfigured blue because this gum chewer did what she always did and eat a piece of gum. And I'm like, that's really kind of mean to do that to a kid. And so I wanted to deal with these children now who are in like, the, now they're mid twenties and they've gotten older and their lives of how they've dealt with it. Mike TV is 10 feet tall when he leaves the factory in, um, and what this tour, the effect they would have on it. And the premise of the show is pretty much Charlie is, or Chuck in my, in my play is really bad at running the factory because hiring a 12 year old is not the best way to find who should lead the business. So the factory workers send out letters to the other chocolate, the golden ticket finders to pick one of them to run the factory, wanting to pick them, um, because, and so we get to see them as they come back to this factory 15 years later uh, and who they've become uh, since the tour. All right, that sounds interesting. And last time you were here, you mentioned that um, there was a full-length play that you were working on. Was that, was that Hugo that you were working on at the time? I think so. It probably was. Because it feels um, like it was around that same time that you mentioned that they asked you to commission it. Yes, I might have not had an idea for it because I remember this dropped right around in December of 2021. It did. So I literally might have gotten that email to start writing something, 
right before we did the interview. Great. <laughs> like I, a couple I like weeks, how so. it, uh, it, it came into to full circle here. I like that. <laughs> yes. Um, no, uh, so I should be checking my inbox today as soon as I get off this call. Maybe there there's another one. There you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, as far as uh, you go with your writing, what are you, are there any, do you have any favorite playwrights that, that you love reading, um, whether they be published or, you know, just, you know, friends on new play exchange, who, who are some of your favorites out there? As far as like playwrights, I love like seeing on stage or who influenced me. Uh, Christopher Durang was a big one for this. So I love Vanya, Masha, Sonia and Spike. Um, and there was something about the goofiness and the heart and of that play uh, but still dealing with a family and their childhood home and their siblings and that bond. And that, that play really spoke to me when I was trying to approach Hugo. And I was thinking a little bit of that. As far as playwrights, I'm trying to think on the new play exchange. I'll go through one. So I'll just give one. Frankie Gonzalez is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal writer. And I've been fortunate that I've been able to see readings of his plays as well as like read them on the new play exchange. Um, it's the one thing that's terrific about plays, uh, things like Gathered by the Ghost Light that do audio plays or even Zoom readings is that I'm not bound by my physical location on what playwrights and plays I could see. Back in the day, I'd see like, oh, a playwright had a reading in Texas. Okay, well, that's great. I'm never going to be able to see that. Good for them. But now I can actually like experience that and see their work and hear their words, which is terrific. But he's he has a play right now. Um, this is The Entrance to Heaven, which is a boxing play. And we talk about toxic masculinity. He deals with positive masculinity in such a way of having these very tough guys who are deeply vulnerable. And it's just such a skill he has that he can take any play and bring you to tears and just move you with words. And so he's, he's fantastic. Um, but he's the exact opposite of kind of the plays that I often write in many ways. He's, he like, I like to have a, focus on hope and going forward and he likes people staring with no win situations a lot and how they overcome them or or get through them and in that he finds the humanity um so but he's a fantastic writer in new play exchange i recommend checking out his work or seeing it it'll probably be coming to a theater near you soon because he's that good uh just real quick i went back to listen to the last interview and you had mentioned you had written a one minute play um so i was just curious what that was about um, I'd written a, uh, so this one minute play is actually, I've written a couple, but this one, one minute play is actually the one I'm trying to turn into a short animated film. So it's called Macintosh and pretty much it's two students who are looking at the cast list for Wizard of Oz and one student is cast as Dorothy and the other is cast as tree number one, who she named Macintosh. And the play is about how there's no small characters and that every, every part matters. Um, and it's a short one minute play. It was produced by a few one minute play festivals. A couple schools have done it before like a quick scene in their class. And I just thought it could be a really cute animated short. And so I was talking to some friends and currently we have an animator on it who's directed some shorts for Sesame Street. And he's Rob, uh, Rob Graydon, who's terrific to work with. And I'm, I'm just really excited to see as it comes together. This is my first time dipping my toe in the animation world. So it's a whole nother world. I'm used to writing for black box theater where it's like, okay, what are the limitations where with animation there's, it's whatever your mind can think of. So it's a very different world where like every decision you have to make of like, what are they wearing? What is this? What does this look like? What is this? 
where when you're in a black box theater, a lot of those decisions are made for you based on the space. So it's been fun. But yeah, one minute plays are fun trying to tell a whole story in a page, page and a half. It's it's tough, but they're, they're a lot of fun. So before we wrap up, uh, remind us where we can find you online. If you have any social media pages that we should mm-hmm. follow. Yes, you could find me um, on Instagram and Twitter, though I don't really use Twitter that much anymore, at NotScubaSteve. Um, in middle school, I came out around the time of Big Daddy. So as a Steve, I got called Scuba Steve constantly. So when it was time to make an Instagram handle, I had to. I was thrilled to see that that was available somehow. So I'm NotScubaSteve on Instagram. Um, you could also find me on the new Play Exchange. Um, or if you want to check out my website, it's just StephenHayat.com. Um, and there are some photos from different plays and productions you could check out. Awesome. Well, thank you for writing this charming play. Um, thank you, Adam and Marion, for being a part of it. Thank you for being here. Keep creating, keep writing. Good luck with all your future stuff. And um, my, my two actors, break legs on any future things you do. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I hope to, uh, hope to have you back on or collaborate again in the future. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you all for listening, and if you are associated with a theater and you would like to produce the play you heard today on your stage, send an email to gatherbytheghostlight at gmail.com or contact the playwright directly at his website, stephenhayat.com. And if you'd like to have some really cool Gather by the Ghostlight merchandise, t-shirts are available at the merchandise link in the show notes and the year one and year two books, which are both also available on Amazon. This program is supported in part by the Greater Augusta Arts Council through a grant from its partner agency, the National Endowment for the Arts. Intro and outro music, as always, is provided by artist JK47. And if you enjoy this podcast, maybe you're a longtime listener, or maybe this is the first episode you've ever heard, let us know. Please leave us a rating or a review in all the places that you can. And also be sure to follow Gather by the Ghost Light on social media to stay up to date on new episodes. I'm Jonathan Cook, and as always, stay safe, and I'll see you next time we gather by the ghost light. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.